Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. Coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, my name is Ryan McGee. And joining us from Southampton, England, the only person on this podcast to ever accomplish anything in this sport is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, you've had some pretty good uh, pretty good run of success lately. How are you doing? Uh, great, yeah. Yeah, we had a good week. We won the English Mixed not the mixed doubles, the mixed championship uh, with Stu Brand, who I think was actually one of the first people to listen to our podcast without prompting. So we got to give him a shout out. He's been a fan since day number one. Shout out, Stu. And uh, the Spain sisters, Fiona and Catherine Spain. And they'd finished second the last two years in the English mixed. And Kerr... Alexander, who'd played with them, kind of had to take a step away for family reasons this year, uh, and they asked me to step into the two spots, so I did, and we got her done, so it was a pretty good weekend. You are That means you are heading to Worlds, right? Yeah, yeah. so we got to represent England at Worlds, which is pretty exciting, my first time representing England in anything. I've kind of finished second and third uh, more times than I care to count now, so it was kind of nice to finally win a national championship. And yeah, we'll go to the Worlds. We don't know where yet. It's normally October. And uh, we think it's going to be in Europe because last year it was in Canada. So they normally try to move it around the region. So probably Europe, maybe Asia. Uh, So we'll see. With your luck, it's going to be in Kisikalio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kisikalio would actually work because the the problem with the mixed is it's, it's basically any country can enter. So... WCF needs six sheets of ice, so they can't, and they normally want to do it in curling facilities as opposed to renting out an arena. So, Kisikalio, we know, already has six sheets of ice basically put in for most of the winter. So, it is certainly on the WCF's shopping list, I'm sure. So, it could be back to Finland. Plus, since you've coached in that building like 12 times now, you would basically have the rock book for for that event, right? <laughs> Uh, I we actually don't ma- I I don't match stones of the juniors actually so we actually don't have the rock book for that uh we're not a st- I've, I've kind of occasionally swiped stones I'll admit from uh, teams with good coaches <laughs> like I'll take a note if we're playing a team with a professional coach how the stones are matched and make a little note of that but uh I think the guys I coach aren't really yet at the rock matching stage so we, we try to keep it as simple as possible so we don't have a, a rock book yet. Well, that's <laughs> good job, Jonathan. Your your laziness has now come to bite you when this event gets gets shipped off to Finland. <laughs> <laughs> it's true; it has come to bite me, my my sloth. Yeah. So. All right. So we'll. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's that's pretty cool. So we'll definitely be talking about that more once we get closer to October. But uh, speaking of worlds. Uh, the World Women's Championship just finished uh, about about an hour ago, uh, actually. So we are trying to work this podcast in between the end of 
the Switzerland-Sweden gold medal game and the start of Virginia Tech's second round basketball game against Liberty. Um, so we have, a, we have a deadline to work with here, but we will, we will try to devote as much time as possible to, to talking about the event that just took place where we saw Switzerland win the gold, uh, getting revenge against Sweden after uh, falling to them in the European championship game. Yeah, and it was uh, yeah, it was kind of a reversal of the the European Championship game, uh, and it was also actually I think one of the best games of the year so far. Uh, maybe, well, extra end game. I think I, I maybe the maybe the Scotties final was more dramatic, mm-hmm. although maybe not. They're both extra end games, but in terms of quality of play, I would definitely say the Sweden Switzerland matchup was that was a case of both teams making big shots and big moments, as opposed to there's a bit more of kind of you know, key misses, especially by, by the home and rink down the stretch, um, leading the result there. So I'd say this is probably, this is my favorite game of the year so far, I'd say. And then you had some crazy twists and turns in that final end. I said on Twitter that if you, if they had those win expectancy graphs for curling, that, that extra end has to look like the track at space mountain with how things changed from shot to shot, uh, in favor of, either team they're going down the stretch. Yeah, no, it was a bit crazy that way. I think there's a, there's a bunch of interesting things that happened down the stretch. So one is Hasselberg opted in nine to deliberately hit and stick, hit, hit and roll out to give the point to Switzerland so as to have the hammer coming home. And Correct. we've seen a couple of other teams do this. And they, I think Cooley kind of sorted did that like, in like the, the Briar final. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about that is if you actually go look at, there actually is win expectancy stats, right? And I, it hasn't yet been updated for the five rock as near as I can tell. But if you go to curling zone, they've got like, under their analytics section, the posted stats. And so statistically speaking, it's, it's about 60-40 team one up with hammer wins the game. And it's interesting to see top teams in kind of, you know, crunch events opting to be one down with hammer rather than one up without. Uh, in kind of we've seen it kind of in two straight events now, right? And I'm not sure if they've got kind of inside intel that we don't have, or if they're simply kind of thinking I want to throw the last shot regardless of what the stats say. Um, I know that Hasselberg works with the curling zone, curling zone gang, analytics gang, kind of use the analytics. I'm not sure if they, that decision was driven by analytics or actually a case of let's throw away the stats and actually play what we're feeling here. But that was kind of a pretty interesting decision, I thought, in end number nine there. Well, we've seen a lot of teams do that here. Well, a lot of professional teams, teams that are a lot better than you and I uh, here in, during the season of champions uh, in that situation, elect to give one and keep the hammer and try to get their deuce in 10. And for the most part, from what I've noticed, it's worked. Teams wind up winning. This time that didn't happen, uh, a lot of which uh, was due to a shot Alina Pets made to force um force sweden into that situation uh to begin with and then switzerland was again able to get a force in 10 get hammer in the extra and then you saw everything was set up great for switzerland they made their ticks they kept the front open um hasselberg's team after a timeout elected to put up a very high center guard, which Tiranzoni then flashed. Then you saw 
a draw by Sweden not necessarily end up in the right spot. And then Alina Petz's first shot picks. And then Anna Hasselberg's last shot slides a little too deep. And that allowed Switzerland to have a relatively easy shot for the win. Yeah, I, th- I actually think Hasselberg made her first shot where she was hoping for. Because I, th- I actually think it was the perfect spot, right? Because oh, no, they had a right. biter at the back. Set up the double go- the double center. The double center guard, hoping for the peel again. And then Pats actually opted to draw around and picked. Yes. And then, yeah, I guess Hasselberg couldn't complain at that point. Like, if no. you've got She basically had triple a triple guard, guard, yeah. Yeah, triple guard, open forefoot. I mean, you, she just was a bit heavy, right? And that's that's kind of what sunk her there, right? If she puts it top button, it'd be interesting to see how Pats nails it. Although she's pretty clutch, so yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't count her out. But... You know, a little deep kind of – and then as soon as it was deep, I mean, I knew like like Pats is not going to miss the forefoot, especially with backing like that. You saw it on her face. Um, once, Yeah, once that rock slid deep, I mean, you saw Pats's face just completely change and you saw the confidence of this game's over, this is ours. Yeah, I think actually – and the place I saw it more was in the semi where there was like an open – there's like not an easy hit, but I think a lot of elite skiffs may have taken the hit for the win and she just – put the broom down without even thinking twice and said, I'm going to draw to the port for the win here. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she just, you know, nailed the button there. So, you know, she's, she's got that confidence that she can hit button whenever she wants, uh, which, you know, is all you can ever ask for in a skip. And uh, it's, she basically won the 2015 worlds, I think on actually a trickier shot, but also a draw, draw to the button. So she's definitely got that kind of ability to come up with a big shot when she needs it. So it's a gold medal for Switzerland, yet another gold medal for Switzerland. Uh, this time, Silvana Tiranzoni adds her name to the list of Swiss skips that have won gold. Uh, and this was really a, a complete reverse of what we saw at Euros. Uh, at Euros, Sweden, they were the ones who started slow. They caught fire at the end. Switzerland was the one who blitzed through the round robin, looked like the best team in, in Europe, and then lost the gold medal game to Sweden. And then here... The Swiss were the ones who started slow. They started two and three, and they even trailed in their sixth game going into the 10th against Latvia and had to put up a big number in order to win that game. Um, you know, after, after that, they rolled off, I think, six wins in a row until they lost their, their last game of the round robin. But yeah, this time they were the ones who caught fire and beat Sweden in the final. Sweden lost their first game against China, and then they won 12 in a row up until that final and you know they were dominant all four led their position in percentage after the round robin um and you know it's a second consecutive silver medal for anna hasselborg at worlds but you know that doesn't really discount her as a player it's unfortunate that it's two straight silver medals but you know they and both they, an extra end yeah, too both an extra ends and they've you know <laughs> yeah. they've they've got a boatload of wins they just don't have a gold at worlds yet but that's something that I'm sure will eventually come for that team. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's interesting. Pats, Holman, Mirhead, Hasselberg are all late, like 28, 29, right? And yeah. there's a good chance these are going to be like the elite skips, well, A, for the next Olympics. Maybe, I mean, for, I think, and maybe you know, for the Olympics after that. Yeah, like, like we could have a decade of like each of these teams being the dominant team for their countries and kind of mixing it up in a lot of worlds, right? So, And that's why you really hope um, that Eve Muirhead comes back and is able to recover from injury because 
even though we've seen Eve forever, what feels like forever, she's 28 years old. Like, yeah. she has a lot of career left um, if she wants to stay with it. Yeah, I think she's got a lot of career. I think the, the, the hip's the big question. Um, and I think, the you know, the other issues, I, I, I still think even when she didn't have the hip, when, when the hip wasn't perhaps an issue, it, it seemed like the new team wasn't quite as gelled as the old unit. And that could just be a matter of just taking its time. But um, certainly wasn't the year she was hoping for this year. But if you're going to have an off year, first year of the Olympic cycles, the year to have it, right? So uh, assuming the hip heals, I'm pretty sure they'll be, you know, back at the world next year. But yeah, these these big name skips that you just mentioned, um, and I'll throw in Alina Petz. Uh, she's, you know, she throws fourth and has a world uh, gold medal to her name. Um, none of them are 30. Two. None of them are, yeah, well, two <laughs> now. None of them are well, actually three. She was the alternate for Ott. Okay. So that, yeah, that counts. <laughs> so she's got three. Um, <laughs> but none of them are 30 yet. And then you add to that the team that just won bronze, their oldest player is about to turn 20 on Monday, which is when I think that this, um, which is when I think that, that this podcast will post. So Korea takes bronze. This is a team that is still a junior eligible team. And this is the first time that we saw t- Team Kim Minji on the world stage this year. And Jonathan, here's what they did uh, as 19-year-olds um, playing in the world this year. They beat the defending Olympic silver medalist for a national team selection, which we'll get into more here in a second. They did that in August. Then they went to the Hokkaido Bank Curling Classic and won it. They made two Curling World Cup finals, one of which they won against Daniel Hasselborg in Sweden. They won the PACC. They finished in a four-way tie for second at World Juniors, but missed out on the playoffs on a tiebreaker. They won silver at the Universiade, where they lost to Sweden. And then they won bronze at Worlds. Not bad for your first year, right? Yeah, it's and actually, what's crazy to me is, and this is because I, I obviously because I coach in this kind of pool, well, I'm kind of like more attuned to the the junior standing. So they they got they missed the playoffs, so finished technically fifth, I guess. But yeah, you said a four way tie for second, but missed the playoffs at World Juniors, medal at World Women's, right? Yeah. And that's, I think that goes to a how good this team is, but also b how much global depth there is mm-hmm. at the moment in the women's worlds game. Mm-hmm. And it's all, I mean, we were chatting about a little bit about this before we started recording. I, th- I'm not sure if the strength of field was, was more at the women's worlds, but I think ne- if you go back, say five to eight years, if you said the world women worlds field was strong on the Scotties, I think most people would think that you're crazy. Right. But I think you can definitely say winning the women's worlds now is probably a bigger accomplishment than winning a Scotties, which I think to maybe a lot of Canadian years, might be shocking, but you know, if you look at the, the weakest team in this field was either Finland or Latvia. Weakest teams in Canada would have been perhaps Yukon or Nunavut. There's no way Yukon or Nunavut beats Latvia, right? Like mm-hmm. Latvia took Chelsea Carey down to the last stone. They took a lot of teams down um, to the last stone. They're, they're, we'll get to them later, but yeah. their record was very deceiving. <clears throat> their record is very deceiving, but so there's no free spaces on the bingo card at women's worlds, but there definitely still are at the Scotties. And then, you know, there's a lot of teams in the top 10 now that aren't Canadian teams 
And that was not the case a decade ago, right? Like a decade ago, if you looked at kind of world standings or world money rankings, you know, there were certainly good international teams, but they, you know, probably the best 10 teams in the world from Canada. Now it's about, if you look at the order of merit standings on both the men's and women's side, top 20 is pretty much week in, week out, 50% international, 50% Canadian teams. And so I think, you know, we'll talk a little bit about how some of the North American teams did, but I think we're having this moment now where, the world championship actually is the best tournament in the game for, uh, you know, determining who the best team is, which I think is a, a good development for curling overall. Yeah. And you mentioned they finished technically fifth at the, the world juniors. And I'm not sure exactly how the tiebreaker played out, but they might be a few centimeters of DSC points away from being in that playoff and having a junior gold medal to add to this year's tally. Yeah, Junior Gold Medal out of this year's tally. Um, and, you know, they, you know they, they've, they've won everything. I think the, the, the thing that's absolutely hilarious is they finished second at the Universiad, right? And this was the big kerfuffle with uh, over Team Sophie Jackson. Mm-hmm. And then they came around next week and, you know, got medaled again at Worlds. So I don't think back-to-back week-long events – is clearly not a serious obstacle towards kind of elite teams performing. I think there's been a bit of coddling going on with uh, some of the elite teams these days. And kind of, if you look at the the schedule this team put out there, they played a pretty competitive and global schedule this year and were able to consistently post results all around the world. We did not see them at a slam this year. I imagine that will change next year. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, well, this will definitely get them high up on the order of merit points, and uh, that'll that's basically your ticket to the slams these days, right? You got to beat both top fourteen, top twelve to have a, a reasonable chance of getting an invite. And I'm sure they'll be sliding up there pretty quickly. So, the the thing that stands in their way is in July they will have to play. I assume they'll have to play Kim Un Jung um, for the in the national team selection competition um they're in korea so they they beat team Jung back in august of course with that team there were a lot of off the ice issues this year um according to yonhap which is the korean kind of state funded basically korea's version of the associated press or the canadian press um the korean curling federation vice president and his daughter who was the coach for team Kim Un Jung uh, misappropriated funds um, verbally and emotionally abused the team. They are no longer with the Korean curling Federation, obviously. And hopefully that means we will see team Kim Un Jung back on tour next year. Um, the skip of that team, uh, Kim Un Jung herself got married back in July and reportedly was pregnant this season. Um, and all you know, took, maternity leave so hopefully they're back on the ice and hopefully both of these teams get a chance to be full tour teams next year um apparently only one team a year gets national funding hopefully with two world quality teams in korea they're able to find the sponsorship that'll get both of these teams on tour and both of these teams in slams next season so we can see Kind of what we saw for Japan, where you had two teams who were slam level teams um, competing in North America. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, different countries clearly have very different ways of running things. Um, 
It's a bit surprising you do your selection in July or August, basically during an off season, where I assume the team's not in in kind of mid-season form, uh, but that's up to the association how they want to do it. But it's also a bit surprising. It's kind of that then decides everything for the whole whole year. So, um, you know, they were saying on the WCF feed that the interest in curling in Asia is through the roof. I mean, I, I spent the week watching the, the YouTube feed and, uh, you know, even for like midweek, midday games, we're getting, there's getting 5,000 views and they're running two streams simultaneously. So you're looking at about 10,000 people just in the live stream. And a lot of the comments I noticed were either in Japanese or Korean um, kind of uh, ideogram, mm-hmm. right? So there was like a lot of like you know, Asian interest in the YouTube feed. So that's good to see. And hopefully that then translates into sponsorship and funding so that Korea is able to essentially, you know, float a couple of national national teams uh, that can play kind of a full tour schedule. And the team they beat for bronze was Team Japan. And, man, you know, it was really cool to see this team take advantage of their opportunity to compete on the world stage because they had won the Japanese championship before in 2017, but Japan had did not qualify for worlds at PACCs that year. So they didn't get to, they didn't get to participate in this tournament. Well, now they did. And boy, did they take advantage of it? They went six and six in the round Robin, uh, which got them into the playoffs because they beat the other two six and six teams, which was the two North American teams, the U S and Canada and then they upset Russia in the six versus three um, opening round game uh, to get into the semifinals. Um, you know, we saw two Japanese teams playing in GSOC events this year. That was Team Fujisawa and Team Yoshimura. Um, this team is definitely on their level because they went, one, they went undefeated at the Japanese championships. And then two, they were able to get in the semifinals at world. So really you have three, maybe even four world quality teams playing out in Japan. And this team proved it based off of their, their performance during this week. Uh, this is team Sena Nakajima, um, team Chubu electric power as they are known in Japan. Um, you know, great week for them. They also beat China in the round robin, so they got some pretty good wins under their belt. Hopefully, they're able to get some more exposure to North American audiences next year based off of their performance at this tournament. Yeah, one thing that came up during the live feed uh, is, so Anne Swisshow mentioned that she was talking to J.D. Lind, who's the coach of the Japanese team or the national head coach. And apparently, part of their sponsorship package is the company provides them with meals for the entire week. So they actually, not only do they get like kind of financial support, but actually all their meals for the week are kind of sent over with them too. So, which I thought was kind of a pretty innovative sponsorship method. Yeah. That was kind of a big deal because they announced one of the things I saw on Twitter was this is the first year that they're doing that same sponsorship deal for the men's team. So like women's curling is a huge deal in Japan. The men's game isn't on the same level. Um, so this year is, I believe, is the first year that Zenno, which is the the main sponsor, is also sending the meals over for the men's team. I think I saw. I think I. I think that's what I read in the story that I that I saw on Twitter. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's great to see, right? I think um, <clears throat> there's a couple of things. I, I like one of the things I've kind of seen in some of the international events I've coached is that 
and even even just for the English boys, when we go to Finland for you know ten twelve days, we actually have what I call the tea crisis because <laughs> like the English are, as you might imagine, very specific about their tea. Our first year there, we didn't pro- pack proper tea bags, and about two days in, there was like just grumpiness from both the, the junior boys and junior girls team because the tea was not up to snuff. <laughs> so we've learned to actually pack proper English tea. <laughs> but but that's the case for like every team. I talked to all these other international teams and if you're at one of these big events, the cuisine is going to be local to that culture. And if you're not used to it or you start to get a little bit homesick, that can affect performance too. So I imagine for a Japanese team to have kind of a whole set of Japanese meals laid out for the week is actually a competitive advantage on top of also just being good financial support. So that's actually a pretty innovative way to sponsor a team, I thought. Is that is that similar to that the story in that book you lent me, Burned by the Rock, where was it the wrench that made them ship cases of Labatt to them when they went to Worlds in Sweden or something along those lines? Yeah, no, I think he was... I mean, I've heard stories about that too. Um, I remember my favorite... <laughs> I was, at the, I was coaching at this uh, junior summer camp about three, four years ago, and there was a Chinese team there. And one of the, one of the off-ice sessions was kind of event nutrition. And <laughs> the Chinese team went, what they wanted for their pregame meal was hot pot and beer. <laughs> and so, and they were serious. And um, I mean, I guess they're all, they, I don't quite know the drinking rules in China, but the, the, the head person, the person leading that session is a WCF official. Like alcohol is prohibited junior events, and the translator went back like, "Yeah, we don't mean alcohol; we mean beer." <laughs> so in their mind, in their mind, they meant like they thought hard liquor was prohibited, not beer. But they actually wanted beer with their hot pot. That they thought that was their kind of standard meal. And the flip side I heard is that I can't remember who it was, but somebody was competing when there was a Worlds in China. And the Chinese hosts had kind of heard that they had to, had to serve Western-style food as well as kind of Chinese food. And um, they looked it up online and found out that what people like in the West was fried chicken and mashed potatoes. And so all three meals every day, apparently, the Western meal was fried chicken and mashed potatoes. <laughs> so Not exactly right just- for, for curling nutrition for the week. Well, yeah. So you talk to a lot of top teams and they'll be like, yeah, we actually figured out over time that we have to pack our own meals or at least some of our own meals when we go just because you do not know what the host committee is going to provide. There's kind of, you know, I've traveled a bit in Asia and like an Asian breakfast is a very different thing from what a Western breakfast is, right? Like certainly in Japan when I've been there, it's, you know, rice is kind of a standard part of your breakfast meal, right? So that's quite different from what like an Asian, what, what a Western palate might like at that time of the morning. So that is kind of an interesting issue or a little nuance in terms of, you know, the game going global. The team that Japan beat in the opening round is the team that finishes fifth, which is Team Russia. They went nine and three in the round robin. Uh, first time at Worlds as a skip for Alina Kovaleva and another strong round robin for this team. They uh, got a win over the Swiss but they had a disappointing finish um, there in the game against Japan in the playoffs. The the turning point was when Kovaleva came up short on a draw against four, and that just completely changed the game. And Japan was able to hang on and get the win in that one. Uh, kind of same story for Team Russia as the Euros. They had a strong round robin and come away with no medal uh, in the playoffs. But, you know, this is a team that... 
is going to be tough to deal with for the rest of the quad. Yeah. And I think, again, depth here too, right? Sinarova has not gone anywhere. She's She just lost out on the, the national championship to to this team. But And then also their junior team just won kind of world gold. Mm-hmm. So... There's a lot of there's a lot of depth in the Russian women's side, right? So uh, Kovaleva is definitely going to be here for this quad, but there's no guarantee that they're the Russian team at the Olympics in 2022 either. Yeah, unless that junior team uh, just starts dominating, like we've seen with uh, with the Korean junior team. Yeah, I mean they're not far off. I, I mean, like they so the thing that came out of the junior team, they won the gold medal. They did not win the B pool. They came yeah, out of the deep right. they lost the they lost the gold medal game to Scotland and then Scotland got relegated back down. So um, again, this is a sign of how competitive it is at the top edge these days, both in the juniors, but I think it's you know the same case in the worlds too. In the adult game too. Coming in sixth is Team China, who went seven and five uh, during the round robin, and another team that started out on fire and things turned around on them uh at the end of at the end of the round robin um they started five and zero, including a win in the first draw against sweden and that was anna hasselborg's only loss up until the gold medal game so the first five their first five games they beat sweden in draw number one they also had wins over the teams that wound up being at the bottom of uh the standings and then they limped home into the playoffs and then lose to the Swiss in kind of a crazy first round game. The Swiss wound up having to score two and 10 to win that game, but that was a back and forth one that could have gone either way. Yeah, it was a bit, I would say uh, they played well. I I thought their tactics were pretty interesting. I actually found that game. I got watched that game. I didn't find it. To my mind, both teams are being a little bit too defensive. It was more like unlike the final today, where both teams were trying to win. I, I almost thought the, the Swiss were playing too defensive a style. They're like not really trying to win the game. You can almost sense they were afraid of losing it. If that makes any sense, and so it was a bit of a bit of a bit, a bit of a defensive snorefest. I thought personally, um, when the Swiss played a bit more aggressive today against Sweden, I think they, they that kind of helped them win the game actually, but. I think, I think a good performance for this team. I think it's the first time we've seen them on the world stage. Is that correct? Uh, I believe so. This was... The, uh, first is a skip for uh, Wang Rue. Um, she's been to... Uh, this, is her, this was her fifth Worlds overall, but her first is a skip. Um, she played third for uh, Zheng Yailun um, last year at last year's World Championships. Yeah, and so they're and they're a youngish team too, so they're kind of. It's I'm not quite sure how the Chinese program set up, but um, they've got multiple kind of national teams yep. out there, so I don't think they've put all their eggs in one basket in terms of determining which team's going to be the the national team going forward. So uh, you know, I, I think a good performance by them, perhaps you know, fading as you said down the stretch, but. Uh, I, I do think, you know, the that uh, all three pack teams qualifying for playoffs, um, I think maybe even though the expanded world championship was supposed to address some of the concerns the Pacific Asia region had about difficulty for them qualifying, 
there's a good case to be made for, you know, a New Zealand or an Australia that kind of missed out basically saying, why aren't there four Asia Pacific teams in the championship, right? Given how well the three ones did, including the one that came through the world qualification event. So there could be a case to be made for expanding the worlds even further, kind of given off these results. And if there's not, um, we're definitely going to have to expect kind of uh, Asian domination uh, over the next cycle, I think. You know, strong showings by Japan, China, and Korea across the board um, is definitely kind of an exciting development for the game. Well, the way North America went, um, maybe the best option would be to expand it and include some of those, the, some of the South American teams that are trying to build because neither North American team made the playoffs, which I believe is the first time that happened since 1982. It was the first time Canada did not make the playoffs and since 1999, but Looking at the U.S. And this is in a 16 playoff, not a 14 playoff like before. That is so. correct. So, yeah, even with the expanded playoff, uh, neither North American team makes it to the weekend. The U.S. Uh, technically is the team that finished seventh by because they beat Canada in the round robin. Uh, and it was really a crazy week for the U.S. So they started two and four. They battled back to get to four and four. And then suffered a tough last end loss against Sweden. That dropped them to four and five and pretty much made it to where they had to win their final three to get into the playoffs because of losses, to, uh, because of their loss to Japan and what was at the time a very poor DSC score. They knew going in that if they didn't win those last three games, that it was going to be very difficult for them to make the playoffs. So they upset China. They beat Scotland to get to six and five. So they're one win away from probably being in the playoffs. They did need some help at the time. Unfortunately, in a freak accident, Jamie Sinclair trips over a stone during handshakes after the win against Scotland, hurts her left leg. She tries to go um, in the next draw against Switzerland. But during practice, it was just determined that she couldn't do it. So they had to take her out of the lineup. They inserted Vicky Persinger and moved Sarah Anderson to skip. And that team, with their skip pulled at the last possible second, I thought played pretty valiantly against the Swiss. But, man, it was just impossible to generate offense against that Swiss team this week. Really tough. They just couldn't, you know, they couldn't get a multiple. They kept getting forced to one. And it was just they... They would, they would make one half shot and the Swiss would instantly penalize them and they would be stuck uh, getting forced to one. So that dropped them to six and six. And then based off of tiebreakers, they knew that they were out. Um, and, you know, we, we've kind of seen this story before, Jonathan, where a U.S. team starts slow. We saw it at the Worlds last year. Of course, we saw it with Team Schuster at the Olympics, and then they came all the way back to win gold. Um you know what? It, what? What is it? What do U.S. teams need to do in order to in order to start stronger and not have to worry about having to make these these great comebacks at the end of the week to make it to the weekend? Well, I don't know if it's just U.S. teams. I, well, let's put it this way: uh, one of the kind of great coaches in curling, Bill Sherhart, has got like all of these kind of you know lines of wisdom, and one of his big ones is it's not how you start; it's how you finish, and he means that both within an individual game, but also within a week-long tournament, right? And, you know, you were reading off the stats about 
China starting off what five and zero, six and zero, and then kind of falling apart and backing into the playoffs, and Switzerland starting off a bit slow but then getting going. Uh, you know, in a certain sense, it's better for the USA to start slow and build. And I think more often than not in tournaments, the teams that do that end up winning on Sunday. But uh, it may be a question of kind of burying yourself a bit too early, right? So in this case, falling to two and four is perhaps a little too slow of a start. Um, Often when good teams start off slow, it's probably kind of one of two or three things. So one is just not adapting to the ice conditions, that even at these elite events, there's going to be you know, some subtle and some not so subtle variations in terms of how different elite ice makers set up the ice. It could be trouble to adapt to the local culture, right? I think some I think some teams travel better than others. And to be perfectly frank, I think North American teams travel worse, right? That <laughs> if you kind of look at the tendencies, especially for Canadian teams, especially when they go to the Asian region, they seem to kind of underperform their their kind of expectations, but also they struggle a bit when they come to Europe too. So I think perhaps the U.S. that's perhaps a similar thing, like a little bit less comfort traveling abroad. And then I think the third thing is just kind of mental, coming out and being ready to play kind of from the get-go, that a lot of these te- a lot of the elite teams are, you know, even Hasselberg dropped their first game. Hasselberg's a team that's basically locked in from the first stone of the event to the last. And everything they do is kind of very precise, following the same pre-shot routine, same strategy, not really kind of feeling their way into an event. And I think perhaps that might be kind of an issue that perhaps the U.S. might need to look at in terms of, you know, how do you get that consistent mentality where you're performing just as well on day one as you are on day eight or nine? Speaking of not adapting to the ice conditions, uh, finishing seventh is... Or I'm sorry, finishing eighth is Team Canada and Team Chelsea Carey. They also went six and six in the round robin, um, but losses to the U.S. and Japan means that they were left on the outside looking in at the playoffs. You know, coming in, we thought that this could be a Chelsea Carey redemption story, um, but at the end of the day, it just wasn't their week. At the at the beginning, they they had trouble figuring out the ice. They had trouble with the rocks. Um, they had a two loss day to Scotland in the U S that really put their backs against the wall after that day, you know, it looked like they really focused on communication. Their next game, they had a, they had one game the next day against China, who at the time was almost at the top of the table and against China, you heard a lot more positive communication from everyone, not just what we typically hear from the front end telling, uh, you know, with their, their last words of encouragement to Chelsea Carey before she shoots, you heard a lot more good shot, good sweep, good call from everyone. You could tell that that was like a talking point after that game was let's rally around each other and let's not, um, let's not get too far down into it that we can't dig ourselves out. So they had a very good game. They beat China and it seemed like they'd be back on track. And then the very next day, it all fell apart again against Switzerland. Um, I believe that final score was like nine to three, something like that. And then a loss to Sweden later effectively eliminated them. They were able to finish six and six, but really just a tough week for this team. There were a lot of, and I have no idea how much the guys on the team were on social media, but there was a lot of criticism directed towards them. 
it was good to see the curling community really rallied around this team when there were a lot of comments being made about them that just weren't fair. And to be honest, Jonathan, this is a sport that Canada has felt for a while that it rules by divine right. Um, but the rest of the world's getting better. And it's not because players are government funded. Uh, it's because everyone's getting better and ice quality and rock quality has also gotten better around the world. And that's something else that's helped even the field. So this isn't, you know, Canada is not ruling the sport by divine right any, anymore. Yeah, I think there's a lot. I think there's a, a lot of things we can kind of pick apart here. So I, I agree with you completely that the Canadian curling fans need to get over themselves. I remember, <laughs> and, and there, there's been a bunch of weird reactions. So one of them was Mark Kennedy's kind of article that, that uh, with Devin Haru that came out. I don't know, probably about four or five months ago now, where he basically was blaming Canadians who've gone abroad and kind of given the the dark arts of curling to other countries. Uh, I mean, if you if you're kind of a curler first, what you ultimately want, I think, is for more people to be playing this game. And so uh, that's a good thing. Right. The fact that Japan, Korea, China are now curling powerhouses mm -hmm. is a good thing. And if a country like China builds you know, a whole bunch of rinks and curling takes off in China as a sport, then. To be honest, that's probably better for someone like Mark Kennedy because there's way more money in the game, and perhaps you know you can start making a professional athlete's salary doing what you love. But the flip side of that means that then Canada's not entitled to just show up, know they're going to make the playoffs, and then you know they're pretty much guaranteed a medal every year. That's just not the case anymore. Uh, like I said a little bit earlier, this is a stronger field than the Scotties, and. Probably going back five, six years ago, you couldn't make that claim. I, I'd say the Briar versus the Men's World still kind of a little, little kind of nudge towards the Briar. But that. even there, even there, I think the bottom end of the world's field is tougher for the Men's than for the than for the Briar. Right? There's there's not any there's no free space in the Bingo card anymore at a World Championship. So that's part one. I think. You know, I think I think a couple of things with the carry team. So one thing I noticed is that that her and Wilkes, her and Sarah Wilkes, kind of started to get. Um, well, Sarah Wilkes in particular started kind of questioning a lot of Chelsea's carries calls more as the week kind of went on, and was kind of shaking her off a lot, changing the call, second guessing the ice, and that to me is a, a kind of a sign of a little team dynamic issue. There doesn't mean they're going to split up, but. That, you know, as, as a coach, you kind of watch for what's that saying? Is it a case that the, the third doesn't really have that much confidence in the skip? What's that doing to the skip's confidence? And, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Chelsea Carey, she's a pretty democratic skip. Like if a player says they want to play a different shot or a different turn, she tends to defer to that player. But there are a few times where like Wilkes would definitely shake Carey off, throw what she, she asked for with the ice she asked for and miss the shot. And, you know, I, I'll say this. If I if I kind of shake off a shot from my skip and I don't make the shot, I know I'm in the doghouse, right? That if you're going to shake off something from the skip, you better you better execute. So I think that's kind of an interesting team dynamic issue that popped up here. Um, doesn't mean they're sunk as a team, but uh, it's worth keeping in mind they really haven't played as that four-person unit prior to Alberta playdown. So, you know, again, we talked about that performance wheel. Maybe they just hit their storming phase at Worlds, which is probably a bad time to hit it, but uh, hopefully they learn from this and can kind of you know build for next year. And to, to keep it in perspective for this particular team, 
I mean, they've really only been together since December and they won a Scotties. So if they can park this result, I, I, I still think the sky's the limit for this team. I like this team a lot and I hope, I hope nothing but the best for these guys going forward. Um, as you were talking, it's worth keeping in mind. The other thing I want to point out, and I pointed this out to some friends after Chelsea Carey won the Scotties, is everyone's like JJ Holman, JJ Holman, right? Chelsea Carey's 32, has just won her second Scotties. You know, Jen Jones had only won one Scotties at that age point, right? So the, the Chelsea Carey's got another 12 years to get to Jen Jones's age and win four more Scotties. And, you know, she's got a maybe not a likely chance of doing that. But if you kind of look at kind of skip comparisons, there's not a lot of skips who've won kind of in either the men's or women's games, two national championships in Canada before 35. So I think she's got like her future is her future and her peak is still ahead of her as a skip. So I wouldn't kind of say they're sunk or they're not done or kind of write them off as a team for the yeah, future. It is a bad week, but hopefully everyone can just keep that in perspective and your point on coaching I mean, how many people are there in Canada that are world-level coaches and want to be world-level coaches and want to continue to make a living in this game as a world-level coach? And then how many coaching spots are available with Curling Canada? It's supply and demand. Uh, yeah. It's supply and demand, and Curling Canada tends to go, and there's lots of good reasons for that, but Curling Canada tends to hire kind of ex-champions, right? So people like Jill Officer... Uh, you know, Nolan Thiessen, Jeff Stoughton, they get picked up by the Curling Canada high performance coaching program pretty quickly. And that, that's, a, you know, they're all extremely knowledgeable and uh, there's no mistakes in that. But, you know, someone like a Tony Zumak, who we had on the, the podcast earlier in the year, for him, as he kind of said in that interview, like the opportunities were abroad. And uh, there's lots of other good, you know, level three, level four coaches in Canada who, if say China or Turkey or Czech Republic or some of these other emerging curling countries come calling and offer them a contract, are going to take it. And to be quite frank, most coaches in Canada are doing it on a volunteer basis, even if they're coaching at the national level. So if, if another country comes along and says, hey, we, we're going to pay you a good salary, give you all the resources you need, that's often a kind of far more enticing offer than you know, being a volunteer coach for a provincial association. The good news for Canada, this year's Worlds does not count for Olympic points because they came in eighth, and I haven't seen them officially announce what the qualification is going to be for this upcoming Olympics, but if it's the same as the previous... Uh, if it's the same as the previous three, you've got the host nation, the next, uh, the top seven get spots, and then you have two spots from the Olympic qualification event. So... You got to get in the top seven to get into the Olympics. Canada came in eighth this time, but the next two are the ones that count. The next two uh, worlds are the ones that give you points for the Olympics. So good news, Canada. It was a, it was a tough tournament, but uh, this one uh, you get kind of a mulligan on. Yeah, I do wonder if this is used as more fuel to the fire for either changing the residency rules or changing the national selection process. Because I think that's the big decision from Curling Canada coming over the summer. And uh, another missed playoff after kind of not meddling in the men's and women's events uh, in Korea, uh, I think starts to raise questions about can Canada keep doing the same things they've been doing and expect uh, those kinds of results. And the other thing is you got to think the short turnaround. It was brought up uh, a lot this week. 
you know, is it feasible to have a big high pressure event like the Scotties and then basically have a week off and then go to Worlds? I mean, it's it's a big question, right? I think I, I kind of poo-pooed it before with the Universiad and then coming around here because Minji Kim's team definitely did that. Uh, perhaps that's um, it's maybe physically tiring, but perhaps not as psychologically tiring, right? A, a Scotties is, I think, a different animal in terms of the different demands placed on you. Yeah, me, media de- media demands, and it's got to be a mentally taxing event to go through that to go through that week. Yeah. Whereas I think the Universiad, there's definitely pressure, but it's not anywhere near either a world championship or a Scotty. So that is, a, that is an interesting question. I think that kind of perhaps raises the question of whether Curling Canada should adopt the Havercroft McGee plan, as we're <laughs> going to call it, which is to simply let the Canada Cup winners be Team Canada and then let the winner of uh, the Briar and Scotties then go to the, the Canada Cup the next year. Um so that's certainly kind of one way to slice it. But I do think that going forward, this is going to be a more common appearance. And I've actually said this in the junior coaching ranks too, and you can mock my words, but this year, Sweden, USA, and Scotland were all relegated from the junior A pool back down to the B pool. And sometime in the not too distant future, a Canadian junior team is going to be relegated to the B pool if they keep the current setup they have, because you've basically got to finish top six to be guaranteed uh, a slot in the A pool. And, you know, if, if Chelsea Carey had been playing in the juniors, Team Canada would have been relegated this year. So um, Canada being relegated to the B pool in one of these events is coming in the not too distant future. And Canadians better get ready for that. You saw what the Canadians are doing with their junior championship, right? Yeah. So the idea is they're going to lower the age level by a year and then move the juniors to late in the season. I think there's there's kind of pros and cons to that. I think the argument for it is if you're, I, you know, this happened to me kind of coming, growing up, right? Your season, my season was over in January. Junior Provincials was January and then I was done and I aged out and there was another half of a season. And if you get bounced in your final year, say in playdowns, your season's over, you know, perhaps even before Christmas. So I think the rationale is, a, move the championship to the end of the season so as many juniors as possible can kind of play for as long a season as possible. And then B, the thinking is the two winning teams can then get the full next season prepare for the World Junior Championships, kind of being supported and coached by Curling Canada. So there's kind of a, a good rationale for that. It's a bit funny that they've basically moved the junior age back down to what it was when I was a junior. And in doing that, that actually means Canada's two years younger than um, the world junior age, which I think again is perhaps not as great an idea as they kind of make it out to be. But um, I think it's you know it's an interesting development, and we'll see it, we'll see what that does for for Canadian juniors going forward. Uh, coming in ninth at Worlds was Team Germany, and Jonathan they just couldn't find that that bit of magic that they had at the European Championships. They did get they did claim wins against the U.S., Japan, and Switzerland. They kind of struggled with consistency. They had a couple of bad losses to Finland and Scotland, and if you flip those two results. They're seven and five and in the playoffs. Yeah, so they were they were kind of in the mix. Um, it's you know I, I think they were they were just out of making the Olympics last cycle. Uh, I, they're not going anywhere this cycle. They'll they'll be you know they'll be kind of right in the mix for an Olympic spot this time too. 
And certainly if, the, if it had been a different result, kind of like Team Canada on a different week, I definitely could have seen Germany making the medal round. Coming in 10th, uh, Scotland with Team Sophie Jackson. Uh, kind of a weird week. Sophie got hurt early in the week. Uh, and then the team brought on Lauren Gray at skip uh, with Sophie uh, recovering from injury. And with Lauren Gray, they beat Finland, Germany, and Latvia. Uh, Sophie came back and they actually wound up being beating Canada to uh, extend their win streak to uh, four games and get the four and two. And then they finished the week with six consecutive losses. So things were looking good at the beginning and then just kind of tapered off there at the end for them. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens next for Scottish curling, right? Like I think, I think the assumption is that Muirhead will be back next year and will probably dominate. But I still insist it was the right decision to send this Jackson team there this year. There were no Olympic points on the line. This gives this team world experience. They're only going to kind of get better. They're they're really young. Some of them are mm-hmm. still junior age. So um, it's a good chance to develop, uh, you know, a second team for the Scottish women's program. And, uh, you know, not the results they were hoping for. And the injury to Sophie kind of didn't help, obviously. But... Um, I think still a good kind of experience overall. And they were they were in most of the games, just kind of not quite able to put them away yet at that level. Yeah, absolutely the right decision. Uh, this team, you know, beat Eve's team three times at the Scottish Championships. Uh, they earned the right to get this experience at Worlds. Um, even Eve said so herself, I think, in an article that was just out um, from the BBC. Absolutely the right decision because you know, we, we assume that Eve's going to eventually get back to a hundred percent and be the same curler. But, you know, with the surgery, there's a chance that she doesn't, there's, you know, there's a chance that Scotland's going to have to rely on Sophie Jackson for this quad. So I'd never really understood the argument of not sending them. Yeah. I, I think for me, uh, when I hear curlers complain about hips or knees, that's scary. That that's basically career ending, or can be career ending, right? So, those are the two kind of joints you really need working: is your sliding hip and your sliding knee. And uh, hopefully, the rehab goes well for Eve during this off season, and she's back to one hundred percent next year. And and even if she is back to one hundred percent, I don't think it makes sense for any country aiming for the podium to put all their eggs in one basket so early in a cycle. I think it, you, you you never know how things shake out over, over a four year cycle. So having a second, I think Scotland should really be looking to develop a third women's team uh, would, or, or British curling should be, uh, is kind of really important here. And then finishing 11th, 12th and 13th, you had Denmark at three and nine, Finland at three and nine and Latvia at one and 11. And as we said earlier, Latvia played a lot better than one and 11. I mean, they scared, a bunch of teams and had four one point losses throughout the week. So like you said, I mean, Jonathan, you said over and over about this Latvian team when we were previewing the event that they weren't going to be walked over, even though you look at them and you think, okay, they haven't been on tour. They, you know, aren't, aren't a slam team. They're not even really playing in the top European events. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to stand a chance against this field, but they more than held their own. Um, they're a veteran team. Yeah, no, they've got juniors. They got the third Santa. She's just out of juniors. 
Aveda's, uh, I mean, Aveda's in her forties, but she's, I mean, she's been around and she's got that. I mean, she's a bit like, uh, a bit like Alina Patz in this sense. And this is like, if you've got a skip who can confidently draw four foot to button when you need it and the Latvian skip can, you're always going to be in the game no matter what, right? It's, they play a bit more of a draw kind of style. So a lot of stones in play and they're comfortable with that and they're comfortable. She's comfortable as a skip kind of having to draw against four. Like repeatedly. And if you can do that as a skip, you're always going to be a tough out. So looking at this event as a whole, you know, pretty cool to see the, the pack put three teams into the playoffs. And then unfortunately, as someone based in North America, uh, to see North America turn into big 10 football and completely miss the playoffs. Um, that was, <laughs> as someone who went to the big 10 for grad school, <laughs> That remark hurts. If you're if you're not a big college football fan, the Big Ten has not scored a point in the college football playoff in four seasons. Yeah, and once upon a time they were the dominant powerhouse. Yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, pretty yeah. The PAC uh, PACC teams uh, they finally got three teams into the event, and all three of them made the playoffs. So it it justifies expanding the event and justifies. I guess that world qualification system to have the opportunity for more PAC teams to make the, to make the tournament to get to begin with. I mean, there was talk about an even bigger expansion uh, as something not that dissimilar from what the Scotties and Briar ended up doing, and I, I think that maybe by the end of this quad, it might be worth. Um, revisiting that format if more and more countries are kind of coming on board with elite funded programs uh posting results so that if a team can come through the world qualification event and end up end up making the medal and making the playoff round right that's that's a pretty good showing for china there uh you know if you'd gone back a decade (laughs) and said you know the scandinavian teams and north american teams really struggled to make the playoffs and in the end it was kind of you know switzerland sweden and three teams from Asia, I think people would have been what what's going on in curling. So that shows you how much the game has changed in the last decade. That and this is kind of going to be par for the course, I think, going forward. This is the second year of the new format, and you saw you saw a lot more complaints about this playoff system last year, mainly because Canada was in the playoffs last year. Um, but not putting the teams that finish one and two into a page playoff system. And if you look at it, if they if they put one versus two into a page playoff and made it uh, to where six teams make the playoffs, they would not. It would require the same number of draws that they use now because they split the semifinals. So you can have teams three through six play each other and then play each other again in what is technically a page three four game and keep the same number of draws. I'm I'm still not a big fan of this format. I think I think there's a good case to be made for going to 16 teams, killing the world qualification event, and then actually having a relegation pool where whichever association finishes bottom, maybe they lose a slot the next year or something, and then just have each kind of regional system have a qualification process. Would be how I did it, or how I would do it, but um, I think that's going to be a bigger issue going forward with, with more and more associations kind of fielding competitive teams 
uh, and fewer, you know, there's going to be more and more spice to fighting to get into that world, those world championships. So I think the format's going to have to change sometime in the not too distant future. Or do you have a world B just like you have uh, with the juniors and wheelchair? You might. I mean, I think the interesting thing with the world junior B is that's gotten too big. Um, like basically the, the kind of event me- end of event meeting with like the WCF officials, there's a lot of discussion about how do we expand the, the, we can't handle more than 25 teams of each gender. So and we're at that number right now. So what do we do now? There's basically no more space for teams. Do we go to a, a world C for the juniors or do we do some other kind of event? And I think that's, that's kind of one way to do it, maybe. Like have a world B earlier in the year and then kind of move people up and down. I think the big issue is cost, that if you're flying people from all over the world, there's a strong case for a regional system. I, if I were in charge of the WCF, uh, which I'm not <laughs> and probably never will be, is I would probably merge the North America and Asia Pacific zone and then keep Europe as a zone just, be, just because of the number of associations. And then... Basically, you have two qualification events, one for North America and Asia Pacific, one for Europe. And then, um, like I said, kind of 16 teams in there with some kind of promotion relegation system built in at the end of the week. All right. And then just any other final thoughts on on this event? I mean, I think it was a, the final was spectacular. I think we should get kind of get back to that because that really was, I think, my favorite curling game of the season so far. Um, kind of really back and forth. Uh, and like, you know, Pats was so kind of money down the stretch there. Uh, Hasselberg kind of didn't give up much either. Like if her, if her hit in 10 rolls, just like, like a centimeter more, they, she wins it on like a spectacular shot. Right. So, um, it could, it really could have gone either way. Uh, definitely, definitely the, Tunzoni rink and the Hasselberg rink are kind of here to play for the whole cycle. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big surprise to see them in the final. But like you said, the big I think the big news out of this week was the domination of the Asian teams along with uh, – I, I don't even think it's fair to say underperformance of Team Canada. It's the fact that the world has caught up to Canada and Canadians have just got to get used to that fact. And it's going to be harder and harder for Canadian teams going forward to win medals. So I think the Canadians have got to readjust their expectations of it. All right. Yeah. If we, if we see a men's championship, uh, men's gold medal game on the level of that women's gold medal game that we just saw, I think we're in for a treat. Um, but yeah, amazing curling, uh, amazing week of curling, uh, looking forward to the men's, which we will preview, uh, later this week. Uh, before we get out of here, um, just a shout out to the two teams that won the USA Club Nationals recently. Uh, Coyotes Curling Club, led by uh, Michael Siggins, uh, they won on the men's side. And on the women's side, um, the team from Madison, Wisconsin won, led by Sydney Schmoose. Uh, you know, that, that's always a fun tournament. You always see some people that you and I know in that tournament. And then occasionally you see a big name, uh, you know, just for instance, the previous year, uh, Debbie McCormick won, uh, for, for Madison, Wisconsin, uh, in 2018. So back-to-back wins for Madison. In fact, they've won three of the last four. So, you know, you see big names, uh, for, for us curling, you see big names, uh, every now and then in this, in this event, um, 
and it's just a really cool event, I think. Yeah, it's a cool event, and it would be cool at some point to see because Canada has the Travelers, and his Scotland actually has its club championship too, slightly different format. But it might be worth thinking about kind of generating at some point a world club championship, right? For basically the more amateur side of the game, uh, to give the teams that win these events something else to go on to. So it's good to see events like this. That I think that kind of helps grow the game too. And uh, congratulations to the winners there. All right. Uh, so coming up later this week will be our men's preview. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and SoundCloud at Rocks Across the Pond. And we are Curling Podcast on Twitter. Um, remember to subscribe and please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play and Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher and TuneIn. You know, those reviews help people find us. Um you know, the, the best compliment we can receive is if you tell your friends that you enjoyed the podcast. Um, and we will talk to you later this week. Goodbye, everybody. Now.